Welcome to Evidence-Based Radio. It is that time of the week, and we are going to be talking about science-type things. (laughs) Okay, Um, so as always, you can find me throughout the week at my Facebook page, which is Evidence-Based Radio, and you can also email me at evidencebasedradio at gmail.com with questions, comments, complaints. Um, I am open to hearing from you. So please do uh, shoot me an email at evidence-based-radio. Okay. So obviously tonight we should start, unfortunately, uh, with another discussion of tragedy. (sighs) The terrorist attack in Las Vegas... I'm sure still has us all reeling. And there's a lot of talk out there about what solutions would best prevent uh, or help prevent another terrorist attack. So let's take a look at the science uh, before moving on once again to uh, less fraught subjects. Now, first of all, first of all, I'd like to point out the obvious which is that now is absolutely the time to be talking about America's unhealthy obsession with guns. Now, I'm not completely anti-gun. I think there's an argument to be made that owning one or two guns for target practice or hunting uh, responsibly can be consistent with the values we should all share. I simply believe that firearms should be harder to obtain should be required to have safety features that make it extremely hard to fire them accidentally and should otherwise be regulated and uh, be made safer than they are right now. According to The Guardian, uh, which took its data from the United Nations, the U.S. has a higher gun death rate by far of any Western nation. In 2012, The U.S. had 29.7 homicides by firearm. The next country was Switzerland with just 7.7. And Australia came in with just 1.4 homicides per million people. Now, the U.S. has by far the most guns in the world per person, with an astonishing 89 guns per 100 people. The next largest contender is Yemen, with just 55 per 100. However, it turns out that a new Harvard Northeastern study of 4,000 gun owners suggests that 78% of American adults don't own a gun at all. 19% of guns of adults own 50% of the guns, and just another 3% own the other 50% of guns. It actually turns out that the overall gun ownership rates have declined, despite the fact that the number of guns in circulation has ballooned. According to the research, that 3% of gun owners own around 17 guns apiece. Now, the survey not only asked if a person owned a gun, but how many obviously, and what type in order to form a more complete picture of gun ownership. Their estimates that 22% of Americans own an estimated 265 million guns. Um, Again, that's, in this case, it's more than one for every adult. 
that that is actually a more conservative estimate than some other estimates. Um, so a poll by the Pew Research Center estimated gun ownership at 31% and Gallup at 28%. But the researchers felt they were pretty confident in their numbers um, because the poll was conducted using an online anonymous panel and the researchers received little pushback from respondents to their questions. So they felt like they were probably getting some pretty good, honest answers. The majority of respondents indicated that they owned weapons to protect themselves or others. When I look at our survey, what I see is a population that is living in fear, Deb Azrael, a Harvard researcher and one of the study's lead authors, told the nonprofit news organization The Trace. They are buying handcuffs to protect themselves against bad guys. They store their guns ready to use because of bad guys, and they believe that their guns make them safer. Now, this is actually a dramatic shift from the 90s, when most of the gun owners noted hunting and target shooting as their main reasons for owning guns. Now, the researchers do warn that they do not yet have an idea as to whether or not owning multiple guns truly does increase the risk of violence, accident, or suicide than owning just one or, you know, a few guns. And so their results have not yet been fully published in an academic journal, um, and they do plan to do that. And so they have some more, um, some more analyses to do, and so they might find some more information about those subjects. But... Um, They definitely seem to have results that are consistent with the changing rhetoric of the political landscape in recent years. Now, I'd like to take a minute to shift the talk to one of the outcomes of our overabundance of guns in this country, which is suicide. And so actually today in the CDC's Morbidity and Mortality Weekly Report comes an article from researchers at the National Center for Injury Prevention and Control at the CDC, which surveyed reporting data from between 2001 and 2015. And what they found um, was that there was an increase in suicide rates across all three levels of urbanization studied. The highest rates of suicide are for men and for non-Hispanic American Indian and Alaska Natives. Now, this latter issue is a topic that we could spend an entire uh, show talking about, um, the issues of suicide in uh, American Indian and Alaska Native um, communities, but we'll shelve that for today. Now, they found that the highest levels are for those, uh, are for men aged 35 to 64, and that there has been an increase both in deaths by firearms and by hanging or suffocation across all urbanization categories. They also found, which is what I consider to be fairly significant to the discussion, that the rate of suicide by firearm is almost twice as high in rural areas compared to urban areas. And so there is a real need in rural areas to sort of discuss this and talk about how easy access to firearms means a higher death rate of suicide by firearm. And, you know, 
firearms are a pretty, uh, they're a way in which suicides are often, you know, completed. There are ways in which, you know, you can attempt a suicide where there's a much higher chance that you'll be discovered and saved. But firearms, a lot of people are very successful um, with that. And so it really elevates the suicide rate. Now, across all urbanization levels, firearms were the most frequent method of death. Now, one of the main limitations that the report suggests is actually that it most likely has a smaller sample size than possible because many of the deaths are marked as either accidental or otherwise masked from the official cause of death otherwise being registered as suicide. So the morbidity and mortality reports, those come from looking at death certificates. So if somebody wants to spare a family and they light down accidental death instead of um, suicide, that's not going to be able to be counted in um, the report. Okay, so let us go back now and talk a little more about whether or not gun control works to reduce gun violence. So last year, researchers reviewed reviewed 130 studies from 10 countries and suggested that in certain nations, quote, the simultaneous implementation of laws targeting multiple firearms restrictions is associated with reductions in firearms death, in firearm deaths. Now, specifically, um, and I think that these are. This is an important uh, pull from this article. They found that laws restricting the purchase, uh, such as background uh, checks, um, actually lower rates of intimate partner partner homicide, and laws related to access, including safe storage of handguns, led to a decrease in unintentional deaths by children. Both of those are huge problems with gun violence. Um, there is a huge amount of problem in this country, especially with gun violence and intimate partner, often um, almost entirely um, female partner homicides. And of course, we have heard again and again, terrible, heart-wrenching tales of children who have unintentionally killed themselves, their playmates, their loved ones with guns that they should never, ever have had access to. And so both of those can be lowered by responsible gun safety regulations. And of course, both of those should be seen as very good outcomes. Intimate partner violence is definitely a place in which restricting access to firearms can have a profound effect, as in suicide. Now, the researchers do point to limitations of the study. Um, for instance, there is really not a robust body of studies that have examined the implementation of new legislation rather than looking at existing legislation. So it's harder to extrapolate how existing legislation is affecting gun deaths, um, violence, and things like that than if you were to implement a new law and then see how that affects things. And so there are some issues here. 
So they note in their conclusion that three general observations emerge from this analysis. The simultaneous implementation of laws targeting multiple elements of firearms regulations reduce firearm-related deaths in certain countries. Two, some specific restrictions on purchase, access, and use of firearms are associated with reductions in firearm deaths. But three, challenges in ecological design and the execution of studies limit the confidence in study findings and the conclusions that can be derived from them. So, in other words, research on the impact of guns on violence is complicated and more more robust studies need to be designed and implemented. Of course, that's hard in the U.S. when there are specific laws that actually outlaw doing research on the public health effects of guns. And so it's very hard to do robust research in the U.S., especially because it's actually banned. Um, The CDC, for instance, cannot do specific studies on gun violence. They are barred by federal law, Um, which is, of course, insane. It's just completely ridiculous that the main uh, body for public health information in this country cannot study guns. Um, Guns are a really big cause of violence and death and um, trauma. And so the fact that they can't be studied by the CDC or by other government agencies is just, it's just insane. Um, But some broad trends can be seen and some conclusions can be made. The researchers concluded, for instance, that in, quote, U.S. studies examining more detailed aspects of background check laws described how requiring checks on restraining orders is associated with the reduction in intimate partner female firearm homicides and how checking local mental health facility records is linked to fewer firearm suicides. Regarding child access prevention laws, Most studies in the United States show that additional laws allowing for felony prosecution of offenders are associated with greater reductions in unintentional deaths among children. So overall, there's no specific silver bullet saying that gun control laws lower gun violence, but neither is there anything to suggest that sensible gun laws detract from the freedom of citizens of nations with such laws, especially in the developed world that they were looking at. And so I think that there is every reason to implement sensible gun laws, such as a national database for background checks and registration, requirements that all guns be stored with trigger locks or otherwise made safe when not in use, and restricting access to extended magazines, so-called bump stock uh, conversion kits, and other items that make it easier to kill multiple people in a short amount of time. None of those things prevents responsible gun owners owners from enjoying their Second Amendment rights. They just don't. (laughs) Um, And I didn't um, note this earlier, but I wanted to just obviously put out a uh, addendum to this, which is that a lot of times during these discussions about um, gun violence, we end up talking about mental health issues. 
And I think that often people see this as a very black and white issue that people who have mental health issues should not have access to guns. But the um, reality is much more nuanced. And so plenty of people who have legitimate uh, diagnosed um, mental health issues have no problems that would prevent them from being able to own guns responsibly and never have a problem. Um, and so there's a real problem where we have to separate the idea that we shouldn't stigmatize all people with mental health issues while also trying to balance that with the idea that there is a real concern about people who are depressed or otherwise um, mentally unbalanced who can use guns in order to hurt themselves mostly um, rather than other people. I mean, it definitely happens that they sometimes hurt other people, but really the main issue with mental health and gun control is around prevention of suicide rather than of trying to um, prevent um, gun deaths, prevent people from going on, you know, from creating terrorist attacks and things like that. And so I think it's really important, um, you know, as someone, especially I personally struggle with mental health issues. And so um, I think that it's really important to always remember that because I think that a lot of people who struggle with mental health issues feel really alienated in these kinds of discussions because we're always looking for an easy answer as to why someone did this thing. And that's a pretty easy answer for a lot of people who don't understand mental health. And um, so I just think it's really important to think about the fact that this isn't black and white, that there's lots of shades of gray, and that there's a real conversation to be had about mental health and suicide, especially, but that not all people with mental health issues will even ever consider uh, picking up a gun or would have a gun and not be responsible with it for their whole lives. Okay. But we are now going to stop talking about guns, um, which I'm very happy to do. And we are going to completely switch gears now and go back to your regularly scheduled fun fact uh, science show where we basically uh, take a few moments to breathe and enjoy some fun science and not worry about how everything is terrible in the world. Um, and yes, I also uh, do want to acknowledge that I, I know about the uh, Republican president's uh, order today about um, contraceptives. And um, as I hope you are, I am furious. Um, but again, I think that we've talked about the real world enough for today um, as far as politics go. And it's time to switch gears and talk about just fun science. I like to sort of wrap up Friday evening with some just nice, interesting stories. So the first one is a delightfully weird story about a bird that pretty much they now suspect never actually existed. So it turns out that in the early 1980s, a Liberian green bull was spotted in the West African country's forest. Only one extant example of the bird was ever collected. It differed from the much more common icterine green bull, 
by having white spots on its feathers. It was considered critically endangered until 2016. That's when researchers at the University of Aberdeen decided to analyze the DNA of the specimen and have determined that it is almost certainly an icterine green bull that simply had unusual plumage, perhaps due to a nutritional def- deficiency as a chick. So it turns out that when they compared the DNA of the two supposed species, the DNA was almost identical. But when comparing the DNA of other species of green bulls, they found distinct differences in the DNA. The Liberian green bull has gained almost mythical status since it was cited in the 1980s, says Professor Martin Collinson, a geneticist from the University of Aberdeen's Institute of Medical Sciences. We can't say definitively that the Liberian green bull is the same bird as the Icterian green bull, but we have presented enough evidence that makes any other explanation seem highly unlikely. The genetic work was performed independently by scientists here in Aberdeen and in Dresden to make sure that there could be no error. We both came to the same conclusion. And so it turns out that the supposed Liberian green bull was sighted on nine different occasions in the Kavala forest of eastern Liberia between 1981 and 1984. And so then in 1984, the one extant example was collected um, in January of that year. And basically it became the holotype for this new species. And um, so that happened. And then unfortunately... Uh, as has happened in many countries, um, especially, unfortunately, in Africa in the 20th century, the country was plagued, uh, was plunged into a deadly civil war. (sighs) And so searches in 2010 and 2013, once the country had stabilized and researchers could go back, failed to find another specimen. Um, And so that prompted them to kind of try and figure out more about the specimen they had and then that led them to finding out that perhaps this was just a fluke all along. Now the Kavala forest is actually a hot spot for other um, diversity and uh, several other species including the white-breasted guinea fowl and the brown-cheeked hornbill um, which are both very much real birds, um, they are considered threatened. Um, there are also mammals in the forest that are considered threatened, such as chimpanzees and pygmy hippopotamuses. Or hippopotamuses. Um, and so the forest is definitely considered a target for conservation, despite the fact that the Liberian green bull uh, may not have ever truly existed as a separate species. Um, and so, of course... This is another one of those um, fun facts about science and especially about taxonomy that I talk about every once in a while, where um, a big thing in taxonomy is the fact that uh, people often don't really um, have a necessarily satisfactory answer to the idea of what is a species. Uh, Some people have different ideas than others. And um, while that may be sort of unfortunate uh, to some people's ideas, you know, it's a it's definitely a moving target. It's definitely something that um, people are working on actively. 
Um, and so the thing about the reason it's a moving target is because people are constantly finding that unfortunately nature is a lot more complicated than we thought. So back in the, you know, 17th and 18th centuries, um, even in the 19th century, we sort of thought that things fell into very clear and concise boxes. And um, especially as we're moving into the 21st century, we're finding out that those clear boxes are really kind of uh, more amorphous um, containers that sometimes bleed into other things or, uh, you know, go in between two other boxes and you know they're just not they're just not as neat and uh square as we once thought they were and that's okay um the more that we can understand about science the better and it's better to take science as it is and take nature as it is I should say um than try and stick it into our neat boxes okay so on the other end of the spectrum is actually the rediscovery of the Lord Howe Island stick insect, sometimes referred colloquially as the tree lobster, which I just think is hilarious. Um, and this, you know, it's a rather huge insect. It, they could actually grow up to um, six inches long, and they once dominated Lord Howe Island off of the coast of Australia. But a twist of fate led to their downfall when, in 1918, a shipwrecked boat brought a horde of invasive rats to the island. The large and slow-moving insects, which are um, flightless, were easy prey, and they were soon presumed extinct. That is, until they were spotted in 2001 and then collected a couple of specimens in 2003, um, when some scientists decided to scale Australia's Balls Pyramid, um, which is a bizarre little island about 12 miles away from um, Lord Howe Island that, as Wired puts it, is decidedly super villain lairish. <laughs> um, the island is actually the remnant of a shield volcano and looks basically like a skinny pyramid, uh, hence its descriptive moniker. When they reached the cliffs of the island, they found what looked like a stockier cousin of the Lord Howe Island stick insect and wondered if it was a remnant population of the uh, LHI stick insect or another species. The only way to know for sure was to test samples of DNA from museum specimens collected before 1918. Unfortunately, DNA tends to degrade over time, and back in the early 2000s, we didn't yet have the technology to test such degraded DNA. But of course, now we do. And so researchers announced yesterday in the journal Current Biology that they were successful in comparing the DNA of older specimens with newly caught specimens to confirm that they are indeed the same insect, even though the still living insects are much more brawny in appearance and have larger um, leg spikes. Now, the difference is actually in DNA is actually less than 1%. And the reason that they're so confident about this is that that's around the same diversion shown in different specimens from LHI, um, from um, Lord Howe Island uh, that were collected in the past. So they took specimens that had been collected before 1918 and compared their DNA, and they had the same amount of variation as between those 
and the now still living um, stick insects. So the diversion within the island are basically of the same magnitude as they are between a Lord Howe Island and Ball's Pyramid, says Sasha um, Mikleya, an evolutionary biologist at Okinawa Institute of Science and Technology and the study's lead author. Now, why and how they differ in appearance from their forebearers remains a mystery, as does how they manage to make the trek to the pyramid. But more genetic testing may help the researchers with clues to their migration. Now, not only is this an interesting story about species, but it also offers a rare opportunity for researchers and the government to think about repatriating the insects to their home island. Now, at the moment, the, in, the ancestors of those first rats still plague the island, but a massive eradif- eradication effort is scheduled for next year. And after that, perhaps the bugs could be repatriated. The Lord Howe Island Stick Insect is a story of loss. It is a story of a fragile island habitat being destroyed by an invasive species introduced by humans, Michaelov said. But the stick insect actually gives us a chance to sort of say, well, we can do something. Although we have done tremendous damage to this environment, there are things we can proactively do to make it potentially better and to bring it back perhaps not exactly how it was, but to go a step in the direction. And so that will be a really interesting thing to track and to see if they do decide to actually try and reintroduce the insect to Lord Howe Island and after the success of their um, rat cull. Okay, it is time to take a break and do some PSAs and I will come back And we will talk about some more animals. All right, hang on for just a moment. Hi, I'm Charlie. I fight fires and I save lives. My name's Renee. I'm a cardiologist. I save lives. My name's Anthony. I'm an EMT. I save lives. You don't have to be a professional to save a life. Firefighters, doctors, and others save lives. You can too. Don't wait. To learn more about the warning signs and how you can help prevent suicide, visit save.org. In a crisis, call the National Suicide Prevention Lifeline at 1-800-273-TALK. Alcohol poisoning is caused by binge drinking large quantities of alcohol in a short period of time. Very high levels of alcohol in the body can shut down critical areas of the brain that control breathing, heart rate, and body temperature, resulting in death. Alcohol poisoning deaths affect people of all ages, but are most common among middle-aged adults. In the United States, an average of six people die every day from alcohol poisoning. Most of the deaths are among men. States and communities can support proven programs and policies to prevent binge drinking, healthcare providers can screen all adult patients for binge drinking and counsel those who do to drink less. Don't binge drink. If you choose to drink, do so in moderation. Up to one drink a day for women or two drinks a day for men. To learn more, visit cdc.gov slash vital signs. Hi, my name's Leo and I use he, him, his pronouns. Hi, my name's AJ, and I use they, them, theirs pronouns. Did you know that sex is your biology and gender is how you identify? 
You can't assume someone's gender. Based on their clothes. Based on their hair. Based on their voice. Who they hang out with. Who they're attracted to. My gender isn't your business. Ask me my pronouns! Brought to you by the PVPA Student Group for Gender, Sexuality, and Diversity. Valley Free Radio is hosting a community tag sale Saturday, October 7th, starting at 8.30 a.m. at 140 Pine Street in Florence. We are cleaning out our old vinyl and CDs, and our programmers will be bringing in items for the sale. All proceeds go towards station improvements. Stop by October 7th between 8.30 a.m. and 3 p.m. at 140 Pine Street in Florence for the Valley Free Radio community tag sale. See you there! Outbreaks of whooping cough, or pertussis, are happening across the United States. This serious respiratory disease can be deadly for babies. By getting the whooping cough vaccine, called Tdap, during the third trimester of each pregnancy, women can pass antibodies to their babies to help protect them until they're old enough to receive their own vaccine. Learn more at cdc.gov slash pertussis slash pregnant. That's pertussis, P-E-R-T-U-S-S-I-S. In our polarizing political climate, it's become difficult to find shows willing to discuss, much less listen to, different points of view. Our job is to talk about things we hope you'll find interesting without all the shouting. To disagree without being disagreeable. To provide incisive factual commentary that cuts through the weekly spin cycle and aims to enlighten, not enrage, our listeners. So, when you get home at night and switch on the lights, do you feel good about the source of your electricity? Did you know that you can choose to power your home with 100% local, clean electricity? You have the power to say no to the standard mix of polluters like natural gas, coal, and oil. Make the switch to clean electricity produced right here in New England. It's easy. Sign up for New England Wind or New England Green Start without any contracts or commitments. Just go to www.massenergy.org forward slash C-E-T. I never get the flu. My kids don't need more shots. I don't have time. We're all healthy. My asthma's under control. I'm pregnant. I've had the flu. It's not a big deal. My kids are too old the for media flu. is exaggerated. I can fight it naturally. No matter how you build your excuses, the flu can blow your house down. Keep your foundation strong. Vaccinate. Learn more at flu.gov. A message from the U.S. Department of Health and Human Services. Okay, we are back, and I do want to remind you to go and get your flu shot. I got my email from my work today that they were offering it, and so I immediately signed up for the first slot. Um, I am serious about this. Get your flu shot. Um, my coworkers were kind of like, meh. And I was like, you are going to get your flu shots. One of my coworkers was like, will you come and hold my hand? And I was like, yes. And she was like, you think I'm joking, but I'm serious. And I said, no, I am serious. I will come with you and hold your hand. But you are going to get your flu shot, especially since she has a baby at home. And so, yes, definitely go get your flu shot. Absolutely, positively, so important. Okay, so let us now move from an insect to what is often an insectivore. 
Um, and so it's been announced that 19 new species of geckos, uh, famed for both sticky feet, even though technically they're not that sticky. It's a much more complicated um, thing with hairs and Vanderwalls uh, <laughs> um, forces and things like that, but known for being able to stick to things. Um, and also, obviously, for insurance company commercials, uh, that 19 new species have been found in a small area of Myanmar, which is around 56 by 31 miles. So not tiny, but pretty small, considering there are 19 of them. Um, 15 have so far been described, and there are another four that they're working on right now. That's the really amazing thing about it, says Lee Grismer of La Sierra University in California. They all come from such a small area. It's common to find lots of closely related species of invertebrates, like snails or insects in such a small area, but it is unprecedented for a backboned animal, he continued. For lizards, it is remarkable. And so the this remarkable speciation is most likely due to the terrain of the area. And so otherwise, it's kind of lowlands. And then this area actually features large limestone blocks, uh, some of them just a kilometer across. And so um, they often have a lot of caves in them. And there is just enough distance between them that they basically um, create uh, micro um microhabitats. And so um, these, they actually refer to them um, as evolutionary islands. Um, and so, of course, being cut off from each other, the different populations developed different traits and have thus become distinct species. And so these high living geckos tend to have longer legs and toes and more slender bodies than their lowland cousins. Grismer's team was exploring the area with funding from the charity Fauna and Flora International, uh, which is actually hoping to save this unusual limestone habitat. Um, some mining is actually taking place in the area, um, but there are also sacred Buddhist caves, which are protected by monks. So hopefully that will also help um, with the argument that this area should be, um, that the area should have a limited amount of development and that they shouldn't allow a ton of mining to take uh, place here. Now, most of the geckos belong to a genus called the bent-toed geckos. However, the team also found three species of dwarf geckos, which are usually only found on cloudy mountaintops. And so again, this place is just crazy and new and interesting and they're just so astonished by what they've found. Now, if you'd like to see some of these adorable lizards, because they're really cute, I have to admit, um, I do love an adorable lizard or two. Um, you can actually go over to the Facebook page um, around seven when the show is over, and you can find a link to check them out. Um, and so I I don't know about you, but I think that geckos do actually tend to be one of the more adorable lizards. Um, they tend to have very cute faces. They often look like they're smiling. Yes, I know that I'm completely anthropomorphizing um, here, but, you know, um, I just, I do think that geckos are pretty awesome. Okay, so let us stick with the animal kingdom for another bit and talk about 
um, this awesome story out of uh, Motherboard, which is about this um, falconer who did a was able to rehabilitate a gyre falcon. And so gyre falcons are the largest falcons in the world. They're gray with white speckled breasts, and they nest on cliff edges in the remote north of Canada and Alaska. They feed largely on ptarmigan, which are a member of the grouse family. And um, definitely beautiful, beautiful birds. And um, they are endurance athletes with immense aerobic um, or aerobatic, I should say, um, capacity. And so they are able to kind of, a lot of other falcons are kind of sprinters, whereas um, gyre falcons are, um, they are in it for the long haul and they will really stalk prey for quite a while until they're able to capture it and um unfortunately eat it. (laughs) And so dedicated falconer and wildlife rehabilitator Steve Schwartz actually is using a new technology to help rehabilitate uh, birds of prey. And so he actually uses drones. Now, um, this particular gyre falcon was first found by Gordon Court, a provincial wildlife status biologist in Alberta, Canada. And so he describes how he went out to collect it um, in, it had been in a field where a farmer had come across it and had called it in. The bird had an open wound and um, a damaged shoulder and couldn't fly. She'd been on the ground a long time and hadn't eaten, he remembered. I didn't think she'd survive the first night. But the bird did survive, and so Court brought her to Schwartz for rehabilitation. Now, most rehab centers don't have the time or dedication to retrain birds to fly, but Schwartz had already used a standard quadcopter quadcopter drone to train his personal birds, a peregrine falcon and a goshawk. And so he had experience rehabilitating an injured, he had also had experience rehabilitating an injured peregrine falcon the year before. And so he took in the Geyer Falcon and for four months put her through a grueling exercise program. And so Sarah Hewitt of Motherboard met with Schwartz and um, he basically showed her exactly how he had done it. What he would do is attach a feathered wing from a pigeon to a six foot long weed whacker cord, um, which he explained apparently was more resistant to tangles and knots than a regular rope. He then tied a small parachute to the opposite end of the cord, which he clamped onto the underside of the drone. Once the drone was in the air, he let his peregrine falcon go after it. Almost as soon as the falcon's hood was removed, it immediately caught the wing and brought it to the ground. So as soon as it tugged, basically, it was able to um, pull the... um, the parachute out of the rig of the um, drone. And so basically, this is how he managed to also help the gyre falcon get back into the sky and be able to hunt once more. And so what happened was that he started slow and he would drag the wing along the ground and she almost immediately began to chase it. Um, On the first day, she was pretty weak, but 
after that, she just got better and better at it. And so as she gained strength, he would lift the wing higher and higher off the ground. Once they'll take it in the air, you can double the altitude they're going every day, he explained. So with a healthy bird, you're up to a thousand feet in very short order. Now, of course, Hewitt notes that this rehab is time-consuming and doesn't really affect the overall population of gyre falcons. And, you know, it's not really a sort of um, necessarily the kind of thing that is going to be scalable. Um, But, you know, there's something very moving about restoring a beautiful animal to full health. Now, Court actually drove five hours to see her released back into the wild. Wow, I never thought that bird would fly again, he exclaimed as she landed on a fence post uh, about a kilometer away from Schwartz um, for the last time. And so uh, sort of left with that image of her being re-released into the wild and um, just a lovely story about a beautiful, beautiful bird that, you know, Otherwise, probably would have ended up spending the rest of their life in a rehab facility, not having access to the air at all and having to be fed and kept um, by someone or, you know, even worse, potentially euthanized. And so to be able to take a bird like that that's on really on death's door and to be able to eventually release it back into the wild is just such... A wonderful story. Um, so I thought it was a nice sort of palate cleanser for everything else uh, that's going on. Okay, so let us now turn to a different kind of animal. Uh, and this is another uh, story of one of my favorite topics, which is, of course, the way that animals are way more like us than we uh, like to think sometimes. And so this time it's guppies. So, you know, tiny little fish. And so a team of researchers at the University of Exeter, UK, studied Trinidadian guppies. And they've actually found that they have individual personalities of sorts. And so their research is published in the journal Functional Ecology. Dr. Tom Husley, lead author and a researcher at the Center for Ecology and Conservation and co-authors, wanted to test the theory that variation in the responses of animals exists along more than a simple axis of risk risk aversion or risk prone. And so previous studies basically said that there's kind of two ways that that, um, animals respond, either they're risk averse or they're risk prone, and it's just an either or axis. But what they ended up finding was that the guppies were much more complex than this simple access would allow. We tested whether in, whether differences could be measured on a simple spectrum of how risk-adverse or risk-prone guppies were, but we found variations between individuals were too complicated to be described in this way. The idea of a simple spectrum is often put forward to explain the behavior of individuals in species such as Trinidadian guppy, Dr. Husley explained. But our research shows that the reality is much more complex. For example, when placed into an unfamiliar environment, we found guppies have various strategies for coping with this stressful situation. Many attempt to hide, others try to escape, some explore cautiously, and so on. 
The differences between them were consistent over time and in different situations, he continued. So while, this be- while the behavior of all guppies changed depending on the situation, for example, all becoming more cautious in more stressful situations, the relative difference between individuals remained intact, which basically, again, means that they had individual personalities or individual ways in which they responded to these stimuli. Now, the researchers introduced mild stress by transferring fish into individually into unfamiliar tanks. Um, and then they introduced a higher level of stress by adding either models of predatory birds or of predatory fish to obviously simulate possible predation. Now, the next step for the researchers is to look at how genetics might play a role in these distinctions of behavior and see if that can be extrapolated to a larger understanding. We want to know how personality relates to other facets of life and to what extent this is driven by genetic rather than environmental influences. The goal is really gaining insight into evolutionary processes, how different behavioral strategies might persist as species evolve. And so that was uh, Professor Alastair Wilson, who is a senior author and also from the CEC. Now, again, clearly this kind of behavior isn't necessarily akin to human personalities, but it once again shows that even these small little fishes can have a much more complex response to stimuli uh, and other situations than would be suggested if they had primitive cognitive functions. And so this is a big thing where we are constantly finding new ways to show that humans are not as special as we think we are. But I actually think that's really cool because I think it's really important for us to find common ground with other animals and with the rest of nature and to really think about ourselves as part of nature and not separate from it because I think that that's where we get into trouble, where we have a lot of issues where we don't believe in things like global warming and, you know, we're basically like, oh, well, humans can't possibly have that kind of impact on nature. And it's like, but we're an integral part of nature. We're just like all of the other animals. And yes, we don't necessarily share all the traits of other animals. We do have distinctive traits. We have creative created things that we consider to be more impressive than other animals, but we also are part of nature and we can affect it just the way that a beaver, beaver dams, you know, they are just as, um, you know, beaver dams are an amazing change to the environment. Uh, If you ever get a chance to watch, there's a little, um, it was an IMAX movie about beavers and I watched it on Netflix um, a year or two ago and it was just fascinating. Um, I know it doesn't sound like the most scintillating of uh, content, but it turns out that beaver dams are just so amazing and they change the landscape and they create new uh, forms of landscape. They create forest and uh, then they they go through forest and grassland and uh, wetland and all of these different phases as the beaver dams uh, develop and eventually break down. And it's just, it was just completely fascinating. So I definitely, I think it was literally just called Beavers. It might still be on Netflix. Um, so uh, 
if I, I will um, find a link to it and I will put it on the Facebook after the show because seriously, it's, it's fascinating. Okay. We do have one more thing to talk about tonight. Um, and so uh, I wanted to once again, uh, circle back to uh, the world of archaeology. And so there has been another uh, write-up of things that have been pulled up from the Antikythera shipwreck. And so, of course, this is the shipwreck from which the amazing Antikythera mechanism was uh, discovered. And so this is, if you don't know about it, um, and you really should because it's amazing, um, the Antikythera mechanism is a sort of brass uh, gear and clockwork um device that was actually used to track astronomical. Um, so it was used to track the sun and the moon and various stars. And it was incredibly complex and amazing. And it's one of those sort of items where people think, oh, clearly this is some sort of outside of the realm of what was possible. But the thing is, is that it isn't. Um, you know, there's a lot of knowledge that we've lost over the years and a lot of things where people were really smart and they did these things, but then they didn't pass on that knowledge to others. And so, you know, knowledge can sometimes be lost that way. And um, it doesn't require aliens or anything like that. It was definitely made by a real human being during the time with the tools available to them. But anyways, the Antikythera shipwreck actually is still filled with things. And so we continue to be able to find new things. And so recently, um, they found a bronze arm from a statue and a strange metal disc with the suggestion that seven bronze statues may also still be down in the depths as yet undiscovered. And so the latest dive on the Roman era wreck, the Roman era wreck, say that three times fast, uh, was led by the Greek Euphorate of Underwater Antiquities, Lund University, and Woods Hole Oceanographic Institute. And so it was conducted in September, and in addition to the arm and the disc, they also found a sarcophagus lid made from fine red marble, wooden ship planks and frame parts that they hope may yield information about the size of the ship, as well as pottery shards, nails, lead sheathing fragments, and other artifacts. Now, scans with a metal detector are what indicated the possible presence of a series of bronze statues. Now, such statues would be exceedingly rare in priceless artifacts if recovered. The disc, currently covered with encrustations, is just over about just over three inches and has four metal arms with holes uh, for pins. Now, initially, the researchers thought it might be a missing gear from the Antikythera mechanism, but x-ray analysis showed that the disc was actually decorated with the image of a bull. They suggest it was a um, decorative object, which would have been attached to either the shield of a statue or even to the ship itself. Now, unfortunately, the site is both on a downslope and is in a seismically active area, which means that the area is actually covered with a lot of uh, newer boulders that have kind of tumbled down um, the slope. And so um, team member Brendan Foley uh, 
told the Guardian that, What we're finding is these sculptures are in among and under the boulders. We think it means a minimum of seven and potentially nine bronze sculptures still waiting for us down there. Now, the bronze statues would be a serious find, as there are only about 50 known to exist uh, from the period. And so during both the classical and medieval eras, bronze was often recycled. And so countless statues and other decorative items has since been lost to history. And actually, it's shipwrecks like the Antikythera wreck that the most impressive examples have been recovered from. And so the next dive is planned for the spring of 2018. And... At that time, the team plans to actually explore the hold of the ship because they haven't even gotten to that yet. So amazing things to come, almost certainly. And with that, we are out of time. I will be back next week with more science and skepticism. Hopefully a full show is worth of it that doesn't have to be in response to any terrible things that have happened. Have a great weekend and please do stay tuned for Civil Politics. This show is part of the Planetside Productions Network. For more information, episodes from our archives, and other projects, please visit www.planetside.pro. And thank you for listening.